Hi, welcome to the Juno Files. This is an audio edition. I'm your host, Jim Juno, and I am talking with Maureen Whitaker. She has a new book out called Jeremy Brett, Playing a Part. Welcome to the show, Maureen. Thank you, Jim. Lovely to be here. Now, Jeremy Brett is most famous for American viewers. I'm in um, I'm in Richmond, Virginia, and for American viewers, I would say Jeremy Brett is most well known for playing Sherlock Holmes in uh, on the PBS stations here, public broadcasting stations. But what got you interested in Jeremy Brett? Well, it's a rather long story. I followed Jeremy's career on the television as early as the 1960s and the 70s, in which he usually played the romantic lead in classical productions. His youthful exuberance and handsome appearance would mean he was specially equipped for these parts, and he was very nice to watch, too. When he was cast as a beautiful Dorian Gray, he did complain that his looks were becoming his problem rather than his asset, although he made a stunning Dorian Gray, and that one earned him the award of the best actor. I remember his performance as the notorious Lord Byron, the romantic poet who Lady Caroline Lamb called mad, bad and dangerous to know. I also remember seeing his Captain Jack Absolute in Sheridan's Arrivals, which was a rare comic role with its comedy of manners, in which Jeremy left the audience spellbound by his red military coat and tight breeches. A peacock amongst crows with an intensity of gaze to camera that lit up the stage. As I moved into teaching literature to students, aged 11 to 18 in secondary school, I would choose his performances as a skilled actor with the extra drawl of looks and personality, which could persuade the young people that the characters lived and breathed. It was just not, not a means of enrichment, but also a preparation for the examinations and a deeper understanding of the text, we hoped. The romantic Bassanio in Merchant of Venice, and of course Sherlock Holmes, was the main draw. The Sign of Four is now firmly established as a chosen text on the English literature's curriculum, which presents an opportunity for sharing our love for Doyle. Now, Jeremy Brett, playing a part, is, this is not, your first book on Jeremy Brett, is it? No, no. I published Playing a Part in 2017, and that edition contained everything I'd found out about his career up to that stage. But then unexpectedly I discovered the archive for the Manchester Library Theatre in the local Central Library. On leaving the Central School of Speech and Drama with two prestigious prizes, Jeremy began his career in repertory in Manchester. He interrupted a rehearsal at the theatre, foolishly telling the director that he intended to be his juvenile for the next season. By 2.30 of the same day, he was already under contract for £7 a week. It is in Manchester that he would meet Robert Stevens, the Shakespearean actor, who would become his best friend a friendship that would last throughout his life and who had died just a month after Jeremy. 
Later, I was given the privilege of viewing some of the lost films, which are kept for research purposes at the British Film Institute in London. I saw the School for Scandal, the typewriter, which was part of the hall from the US Embassy Library that suddenly turned up, the ghost sonata in which Jeremy played the student in a dreamlike play directed by Ingmar Bergman, acting alongside Robert Halkman. On one part of Kenilworth, the prestige production about Queen Elizabeth I and her affair with the Earl of Leicester. A legacy and Mort Darthur were other gems discovered at the BFI, and thus Jeremy's career was fleshed out. Occasionally, new interviews still turn up, so I'm sure it will remain unfinished. This edition was in response to a plea for some tribute for Jeremy's 25th anniversary. He died of cardiomyopathy, a legacy of the effects of rheumatic fever in his youth on the 12th of September 1995. Now, Jeremy Brett playing a part, this is 468 pages, but it has over four, has over 400 photos, which is an incredible feat. Was it hard to know what to leave out, and what was the process for for uh, deciding what to leave in and what to leave out? Many of the personal photos were part of Jeremy's own collection, shared with me by Linda Pritchard. In the early years, some of the performances were not always available, and some of those films are lost too. So choosing amongst the later performances where there are loads of material was much easier. And I have chosen my favourites. So those are the ones you can see in the book. What was the biggest surprise for you? Because, um, you know, he had dyslexia. Was that it? Oh, it's a bit more than that. But yes, I didn't know he suffered from dyslexia either. Or that he was tongue-tied and couldn't pronounce his R and S sounds. Both these conditions would present a major obstacle for an actor like Jeremy especially if they had, had ambitions to be a Shakespearean actor. Jeremy was determined that these problems would not stop him from achieving his dream. He said, not being able to pronounce the letters R and S is not something an actor can get away with. But because of my belief, and probably a good dose of stubbornness, I just would not let go of my dream. I knew there had to be a way to overcome the obstacle. There just had to be. His speech wasn't put right until he was 17 when he joined the London Central School for Speech and Drama. He said, I had to have my tongue cut like a crow to get my tongue moving. I had to learn to speak all over again. So I had a tremendous battle with that. A huge fight with my body because I had been in bed for over eight months and I finally got up in a very odd shape. That really got me involved with words and I had to do a lot of vocal exercises. I still do them every morning. The other surprise for me was to discover his beautiful soprano voice. It was described to be like that of Elizabeth Swartzkopf and perfected in the Eton College Choir. He said, The only way I stood out from the other boys was with an exceptionally good singing voice, which soared like a skylark. 
after our music master, Sir Sidney Watson, picked me out to sing the solos in the Eton College Choir, I got fan mail from the other boys' sisters requesting my autograph, and I even made a record. I was a number one chorister, so I had all the solos, wonderful thing, songs to sing. I used to dramatise them quite dreadfully and get quite emotional. I remember an even song in the devastatingly beautiful college chapel and a shaft of light came through the window. I'm sorry to say I thought it was for me and moved into it for the Brahms Requiem. Was Sherlock Holmes one of your favourite roles of his or was it Hamlet or the Three Musketeers? I wouldn't, can't comment on Hamlet because I have not seen it. It was not possible in 1961 to visit London and to see the theatre productions and unfortunately was never filmed. It was reputably an excellent production by Frank Hauser and Jeremy at the early age of 26 made the noble and poetic Hamlet, notable for his unexpected bursts of affection and overall exuberance. The critics were kind and pointed out his princely looks in an intelligent and straightforward production. He thought he was very young and handsome, even Byronic, although Frank Hobson had highlighted his excessive cruelty towards his mother Gertrude, which Jeremy admitted was a response to the tragic death of his mother in a car accident. He explained his fascination for the role in another interview. It's like trying to run up Everest. You know you're going to be defeated, but what a wonderful way to go. I had a marvellous director who encouraged me when I played it, and I absolutely flew. Got myself exhausted because it's a long, long haul. But there are moments in that play when you suddenly get one or two things right, and you find you're choking back tears because something has come to you and you long to go back and do it again. The Three Musketeers is available on DVD and it's a real treat to see D'Artagnan as an enthusiastic, active young man, passionate and spontaneous. The Sunday classic serial was always popular on the BBC and this part thrust him into the public consciousness. He told plays and players that his fan mail had increased considerably. The 24 million minutes of screen time was filled with swashbuckling action, intrigue and romance. Jeremy said it was a relief to play a full-blooded character who reacts strongly, intensively and spontaneously after the modern neurosis in the theatre. He was interviewed by the girl magazines, Jackie, and Diana, who wanted to know the colour of his eyes and what his favourite food was. And one girl even wrote to say she loved his curly eyebrows. The director, Peter Hammond, wanted to portray D'Artagnan as he appeared in the book, a gauche and simple country boy, at first, and later very bitter. Peter Hammond worked again with Jeremy on Sherlock Holmes, and he commented that he was as good a D'Artagnan as he was Holmes. 
I think Sherlock Holmes was special, and Jeremy said it had really made his career because it brought him fame. But he said he found the role harder to play than Hamlet or Macbeth, as there was no depth of character to capture in Doyle's writing. His friend Robert Stevens, who played Holmes in the Billy Wilder film The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, rang Jeremy to tell him not to do it. He described Holmes as hollow and difficult to fill. Added to that were the many famous actors over the years who had made their reputations in the role, such as Peter Cushing and Basil Rathbone, and Jeremy thought he had been miscast. He saw himself as a passionate romantic actor, an extrovert, very different to the complex isolated creature that was Holmes, a man who doesn't believe in society or in trivia. Consequently, he would fill the character with stories of a deprived childhood, of a mother he saw rarely, and a nanny who scrubbed him, so that he closed his heart to women and relationships. He thought his rejection by a girl at university would have made him turn to boxing or fencing and encourage him to become an expert at sport. As he began to play the role, he decided that Holmes was a man of feeling and admitted that he had allowed the element to creep into his interpretation. His physical approach to the role was fascinating, but he insisted that everything he did was there in Doyle. Every detail of throwing himself onto the floor to find a clue or his climbing of a monumental fireplace in the Abbey Grange or jumping into a parapet of the bridge in the problem of Thor Place could be proved by reading the stories. When Michael Cox first envisaged the Granada series for television, he wanted to produce the very best Sherlock Holmes, one that was an authentic representation of the Conan Doyle stories and one that a PhD student could prepare their thesis from. With Jeremy's dedication and natural talent, he achieved that vision. Jeremy had co captured the volatile, dangerous, but above all the brilliance of Holmes, and earned the title of the definitive and even the quintessential Sherlock Holmes. But Jeremy was a Shakespearean actor who loved the sound of words, the rhyme and rhythm of the poetry. He said Bassanio in The Merchant of Venice and Barone in Love's Labour's Lost were his favourite roles. Bassanio was the extravagant hero with long flowing hair and passion in his soul that he adored to play. And after all, he was playing alongside Laurence Olivier and Joan Plowright at the National Theatre in a play heralded as being one of the most powerful, dramatic performances of all time. This was one of Olivier's great roles, and Trevor Nunn commented that all the top actors of Britain were on that stage. His other favourite role was that of Barone, who sparkled with mature wit, the first human being that Shakespeare created. Jeremy played Barone four times in his career, and the part was similar to Jeremy's own natural exuberance.
and that's why he did so well with it. Now, one of the other roles that American audiences may be familiar with Jeremy Brett from is the role of Freddy in the movie My Fair Lady, where he was also a romantic hero, and he's in love with Eliza Doolittle. Oh, yes. The lovelorn Freddy Einsford Hill. He's the ultimate romantic hero as he stands on the street where Eliza lives, bombards her with love letters and hopes she will finally emerge. His appearance at the Ascot races is perfect as Jeremy shows his natural charm, his elegance and style in top hat and tails. He had been told he was building up the juvenile lead for the younger audiences, but he wasn't given the opportunity to develop the role and met some opposition from Rex Harrison, who was feeling peeved at having to share the set with Jeremy as they both needed to rehearse their big numbers in the same space. Jeremy told one interviewer that it was a joy working once more with Audrey, and he had very much longed to kiss kiss her in the show-me number. Their faces were just a quarter of an inch apart, but were always separated by the iron railing. The dubbing of Jeremy's singing voice and Audrey's voice was a disappointment for both of them. Marnie Nixon sang for Audrey and Bill Shirley had sung for Jeremy on the street where you live. They were both hurt by the decision. The play had been a smash hit on Broadway, more than 7,000 performances, so the film was longer awaited. It was the last of the great musicals greeted with huge enthusiasm and expectation of its glamour and style. And this was the reason why Audrey's voice was deemed not good enough. Added to that was the public outcry that Julie Andrews was not given the part of Eliza. She had played it on Broadway with Rex Harrison and had an excellent singing voice. It's an intriguing thought that if Julie had taken the role, Jeremy might also have been allowed to sing his song on the street where you live. One of the most intriguing things I found in your book was that Jeremy was chosen as a possible replacement for Sean Connery as James Bond, but he he didn't never came to pass, did it? No, no. When he was invited to audition for the role, Jeremy's father said. It's the sort of role you cannot afford to turn round and turn down. Unfortunately, he was not chosen for the part in the film On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which went to George Lazenby. Jeremy thought it would have spoiled his life. He thought Bond too smooth and not really him. He told another reporter he had joined some friends for lunch and had a few too many glasses of port. Though he wasn't drunk, he did get a bit carried away in a fight scene and hit the stuntman who was working with him. He didn't get the part. <laughs> Not after that, no. <laughs> no. But his time with the old Vic seems to be one of the favorite times of his life. Yes, yes. He always said that the National Theatre under Olivier was really the best time and his best experience. He was first chosen by Laurence Olivier to become one of his players for the Chichester Festival in 1962, 
And he had to turn it down because he was committed to the film The Wild and the Willing. He was invited back a year later and worked for just one season in St. Joan and the Workhouse Donkey before going off to Hollywood for My Fair Lady. If he'd been offered Hamlet in the season's opening play at the new National Theatre, he would have stayed and undoubtedly his career would have followed a different direction. But Olivier wanted a big name, and Peter O'Toole, who was basking in the fame of Lawrence of Arabia, was chosen instead. Olivier had been honoured as the best actor most qualified to launch the long-awaited National Theatre, and he wanted his company to consist of the best actors in the world performing the best plays in the world. He needed actors who could play the central roles of the Shakespearean canon as well as he had and still did. The cream of the new talent would become the leading actors of the future. He had two lists, one called Renowned and the other To Be Renowned. Some of the names featured included Maggie Smith, Robert Stevens, Lynn Redgrave, Derek Jacobi, Ian McKellen, Michael York and Anthony Hopkins. They would bring exciting new talent to the stage by their inventiveness and spontaneity, which would have a lasting effect on the company. Jeremy, with his public school background and upper-class accent, had been chosen to be part of this exciting new group. He had been a young actor in the era of the angry young man. And as an ex-Eaton schoolboy, he was definitely out. Olivier saved him by taking him on at the National. One day in rehearsal, Olivier shouted at him, I want your trumpet. And Jeremy replied that he didn't have one. He said, get a trumpet. I expect every actor to have a full orchestra. It was a strange request for anyone, especially for an actor. But Jeremy explained Olivia's meaning in an interview where he said his great mentor meant to give him courage. He said, I expect every actor who works with me to have the body of a god and the voice of a full orchestra. And there he was doing it. That was what was so sensational. You had the example before you. He was the greatest actor who ever lived. He would call Olivier his great god. Another piece of advice given to each one of his actors was to create a living person with a full biography. The role he was playing in the family. A background and a past with each person believing wholeheartedly in his own character. His contribution would be believable and the play as a whole would be pushed in the right direction. To create a complete three-dimensional figure and not a cardboard cutout, to transport an audience, they must see life and not pace. This was one piece of advice Jeremy would use in his preparation for becoming Sherlock Holmes, one which he shared with anyone who asked. 
Now, he played Sherlock Holmes for 10 years, 1984 to 1994. How hard of a decision was it for him to leave that role? I think it was very difficult for him, especially as the studios had offered the option of completing the canon. But in some ways, it was a relief, as he had been suffering from poor health over the filming of the last series. He caught pneumonia during a nighttime shoot for The Three Gables, the third of the six-episode series, and from then on he struggled. During the next film, The Dying Detective, he fainted into the arms of Roy Hutt, who was playing a cameo role. The crew was planning a party to celebrate Jeremy's 60th birthday, but he had to ask them to take him to hospital. And it was at this point that he was diagnosed with a heart condition. He was unable to appear in the Mazarin Stone, where Charles Gray was brought in to reprise the role of Mycroft. But he was released from hospital to play the final episode of the cardboard box. He had several litres of excess water drained from his lungs and appeared slimmer and much fitter in this final appearance of Sherlock Holmes. The prescription of lithium used to treat his manic depression eventually brought on his heart trouble, a legacy of the rheumatic fever of his youth. That started at the age of 16, when he had set out to win the annual Eton diving competition, and he developed boils in his ears, and his heart became enlarged to twice its normal size. He was bedridden for eight months, and his mother suggested that wheels should be added to his bed to push him outside, and even along the lanes of Berkswell. He did exams from his bed and learned chess. He said, Doctors thought I would never recover. They told me I would never run upstairs and that I will be chair-bound for the rest of my life. Jeremy proved them wrong by sheer willpower, and knowing that there is more to us than life and death makes one realise that all things are possible. But he did carry the damage to his heart, which caused him eventually to have to leave the role of Holmes. He did appear as narrator in More Lovely Than Ever, the documentary to launch the remastered My Fair Lady film in 1994, and also in the documentary for BBC called Playing the Dane, which featured interviews with actors who had played the role of Hamlet. Jeremy Brent was a man who overcame so many obstacles, obstacles, and to become a success on stage and even in movies, it's just astounding what he accomplished. It was. Linda wrote about his determination to succeed. Jeremy called it God power, proving he was a spiritual man, one who prayed daily and kept a copy of the poem Footprints in his pocket. He was also a very joyful person who found the humour in most things, especially if they were serious when he could laugh even louder. Edward Hardwick tells of one morning at the Granada Studios in Manchester, watching Jeremy pay, paying off a cab driver 
whilst his well-worn, much-washed white trousers parted company with the waistband and fell in a heap on the curb. His great roar of laughter was so loud that it could have been heard in Liverpool. Edward said whenever he thought of Jeremy, it was always to see him laughing, a wonderful memory of his good friend. Well, Maureen, I thank you so much for being on the Juno Files today. It has been a real pleasure talking to you. And a pleasure for me too. Thank you, Jim. Maureen Whitaker, the book is Jeremy Brett playing a part. You can find it on Amazon or uh, any any online booksellers. And even go into your brick-and-mortar bookseller store and you ask them to order it if they don't have it. Maureen Whitaker, Jeremy Brett playing a part. Thank you again. Thank you.